Thank you, Sai. Thank you, everyone. Um, it's, it's great to be welcomed. I uh, actually, funny enough, when I was younger in primary school, I had a teacher whose um, little one who was about four, he could speak, but he couldn't pronounce the word Malcolm. So he just called me welcome. So I, I, I felt great about it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, but also growing up, I have another story for you. When I was uh, living at my parents' house, my room was the one on the far end of the house. And there was a lounge in between my room and everything else. So anytime I wanted to go to the kitchen or go to the bathroom or whatever it might be, I had to walk through the lounge and past the television. This has had a lasting effect of my life, not for the good. Because what would happen is I would find myself sitting on the arm of the couch, watching the TV, intrigued but never intending to sit down and watch the show. So inevitably, 10, 15 minutes later, I'd realize where I was and that I was actually intending to do something else, not understand what the show was about, and then carry on with my day. So I spent way too many hours doing that type of thing. And I hope that this morning, I can help us to not do the same thing. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna be zooming in to Jesus' trial in the book of Luke. But what we can, the danger that we, have, that we face is that we can look only at this text and miss the fact that Luke is actually giving us a testimony throughout his entire gospel about what we should have in our minds when we reach this point. We should have in our minds who Jesus is so that when we reach and hear his confessions here, we understand the context of where they come from. Okay? So I'm really excited that's where we're going to be. A series, as Simon said, Confessions, this is part two. James kicked us off last week, and what he did is he told us about the Last Supper, right? This was the festival that Jesus, the festival of the Passover that Jesus um, celebrated together with his disciples, but he remixed the entire thing. Because the Passover used to be a meal which allowed the people to celebrate and remember what God had done in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And what Jesus does is he remixes the entire thing and he says, you know what, this does not remind you of that anymore. In future, it's going to remind you of my body broken and my blood spilt on your behalf. And it's going to remind you of the new covenant that I'm instilling today so that you don't have to think about how God used to deal with people through the law, but now how he's going to deal with people through this new covenant that I'm enacting. And so it's a fantastic moment. I bet you the disciples were confused. They didn't really understand. Only after Jesus' death and resurrection did they probably understand the significance of what that meant. So if you haven't heard that preach, I encourage you, log on, check out YouTube, Spotify, whatever it is. Um, you'll definitely be blessed by it. But what I want to do is I want to fast forward for us just a little bit to the point where Jesus' arrest and his trial starts. See, after the meal, what happened is Jesus and the disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they had some quiet time. Jesus, in fact, was praying and preparing himself for the events that he knew would ensue. He knew that he would be arrested. He knew that he would be tried, and he knew the cross was coming. So he's preparing himself before the Father and praying, and I encourage you, it's worth your investment. Go and read Luke chapter 22 this week and go and delve into that prayer to see how Jesus just lays himself down and submits himself to the will of the Father. But I'm going to fast forward us even a little bit further than that is that while Jesus is in the garden and praying, Judas arrives, one of the 12, and he's betrayed Jesus because this was a moment that the disciples shared away from the public 
away from all of the crowds. And what he does is he brings the chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law, all of Jesus' enemies, together with a bunch of soldiers, he brings them into the garden so they might have an opportunity to arrest Jesus without having pushback from the crowds. And so this is an absolutely painful moment for Jesus. And what ensues is an absolute travesty of justice. It's a mockery of a fair trial. We instead see that there are a series of questions that get posed to Jesus, but there's a predetermined verdict, guilty. And there's a predetermined sentence, death. So that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to ask the questions, we're going to ask who said it, why did they say it, what were they intending to communicate, and in fact, most importantly, we're going to try and understand what Luke, the gospel writer, wanted to communicate to us. Because like I said, he's been writing his entire gospel, so there's some things that we should have picked up by this point, and we need to bring that into the moment, so we don't only look at his historical narrative of the events, but actually see what's going on behind the scenes. And so Jesus' trial centers around two questions. I'm going to read them for us in a second. But the two questions are, are you the Christ? And if so, tell us. And are you the King of the Jews? So I'm going to just read two excerpts from Luke, Luke chapter 22 and 23. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together both the chief priests and the scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And then a little bit later on, the whole company went across and they brought, before, brought Jesus before Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now the spoiler, if you're not familiar with the text, I'm sure most of us are, is that Jesus emphatically answers yes to both of these questions. He says, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one, and I am the king of the Jews. Quick sidebar, I love spoilers. In fact, I'm trained to think in terms of spoilers. So you might not know, but my eight to five, or six, seven, eight, nine, ten over the past few weeks, I'm actually a mechanical engineer. I work in the consulting industry, and uh, engineers have this funny thing, because whenever you enter a meeting and you have to do a presentation, people only want you to give away the spoiler. How much will it cost? That's the only question that people want to ask. And so if you give an answer that's low enough, no further questions. If your answer is too high, you better be prepared for a barrage of questions that will come after that. And so we're trained to think, give the spoiler up front so that you can gauge people's reactions. Anyway, that's just a sidebar about me. Um, but Jesus' answer to these questions is emphatically, yes, I am the Son of God. Um, but his confession doesn't serve to exonerate him. In fact, it becomes the very thing which leads to his condemnation. Because the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they use this as an opportunity to call him guilty of blasphemy. And they want to put him in front of um, various tribunals to get him condemned for standing against the government of the time. They were looking for an excuse to get rid of him. And I think this is a, a great moment to pause and to do a bit of a rewind through the book of Luke. Because we're not sure 
Should we be paying attention to the way they treat Jesus and the way they treat his answers? Are they valid? Is, this, is their skepticism warranted at all? And I think you're going to see that Luke would tell us not at all. He emphatically has actually shown that Jesus is who he claims to be. And so I'm going to do a quick sprint through the entire Gospel of Luke up to this point and try to just show you the evidence that Luke puts before us that we can use to make our decision about who Jesus is. Strap in. Luke starts with the birth of Jesus, which is miraculous. He says Jesus is born of a virgin. He says that his birth was foretold centuries before by the prophets. And he also says that Jesus' birth was announced to his mother Mary by angels and announced to shepherds in the field by angels. Can you imagine? Then he speaks about the baptism of Jesus, an incredible moment where not only is Jesus present, but the Holy Spirit manifests physically in the form of a dove. And God the Father's voice is heard audibly to the crowds coming from heaven. And so there's this moment where we say Jesus is not any other man. Then what Luke does is he gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And he traces Jesus' lineage back through King David all the way back to Adam. And he concludes by saying, therefore he is the son of God. Can you pick up the trend of what Luke is doing? Luke then also tells us that Jesus overcame 40 days of temptation by Satan in the wilderness. The only human to ever have walked the face of the earth to have overcome Satan's temptation, remaining sinless. And then we've got Jesus' claims of himself, his claims about himself. He says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He says he's the son of man, which we're going to get into in a sec. He says he's the only way to the Father. And he even claims that he has the authority of God to be able to forgive sin. Jesus at one point reads the scroll of Isaiah in the temple. Uh, he pulls up a prophecy about himself and he says to the people, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing through me. So Jesus is emphatically clear about who he is and what he intends to do. Now, we might ask the question, but is there evidence to back up these claims of Jesus? Luke would tell us absolutely yes. And one of the primary ways is through the moments of healing, the miracles that Jesus performs. He heals people like this in an instant, either by the word of his mouth or the touch of his hand. I've got a list here. He heals a demon-possessed man, Peter's mother-in-law, a leper, a paralyzed man, a man with a withered hand, a centurion's servant. He raises a widow's son from the dead. He heals another demon-possessed man, a woman suffering from constant bleeding, a ruler's daughter, a boy with an unclean spirit, a mute man, a woman who had lived with a disabling spirit for 18 years, a man with dropsy, 10 lepers, and he restored sight to a blind man. No one else has ever been able to do this. And this is the Jesus that Luke is recording for us. He also tells us that Jesus had the authority to control nature itself. And he recalls an instance where Jesus calms the storm simply by speaking to it. And the wind and the waves cease instantly. One of my personal favorites is he recalls the story of Jesus feeding over 5,000 people with one kid's lunchbox. And it was a small lunchbox at that. I think that's just amazing. Luke also records that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John up on a mountaintop. And his face became radiant as if angelic and even more than angelic. Right? And in that same instance, God the Father again speaks audibly from heaven. And he says, this is my son. 
And then the last thing that Luke records for us in this instance is that Jesus not only healed himself, but he empowered his disciples to be able to cast out demons and to heal. So there is this just treasure trove, this trail of evidence that Luke puts before us, and he says, look at who Jesus is. He is supernatural. He's divine. He's worthy of your attention. He is worthy of your worship and your adoration. Luke says in the beginning of, it, in the beginning of his gospel, when he's introducing his, his purpose, he says this. He says, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account that you might have certainty considering the things that you've been taught. So Luke's entire purpose is to put before us the events as they occurred, but he definitely intends that we should interpret them. We should understand what they mean. They mean that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the King of the Jews. And so as we are going to return now to the moment where Jesus' trial starts, I want to suggest that you look at it a little bit differently. Yes, look at Jesus' confessions about himself, but why don't we look at his accusers and see what they have to say and see what their confessions tell us about their position towards God and towards others, and you're going to be surprised. Now, for those of us who are familiar with this text, you'll know how serious it is and how seriously it comes across. But for the people involved, the chief priests and the scribes, it's as if, it's as if they treat this thing as some kind of sick, twisted game. They're just trying to manipulate. They're just trying to wheel and deal so that they can get their way. And so to help us kind of navigate through this trial, I'm going to use some really cheesy game show lines. Okay? They're going to help you just understand what's going on. And the first one is called 50-50. You'll know which game show that comes from. Okay, but we're going to get into it now, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 71. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him, that's Jesus, away to their council. And they said to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man. And he shall be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so they all said to him, Are you then the Son of God? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. You see, Jesus answers their question so clearly. I am the Christ because I am the Son of Man. Now, that terminology is probably not familiar to most of us, but it would have been crystal clear to the people he was speaking to. Because the Son of Man was, in fact, uh, a character or an, uh, a person in the vision of the prophet Daniel. Now, Daniel was a prophet. He lived a couple of hundred years before. And his message that he delivered to the people of Israel was one that emphasized God's authority and God's sovereignty over all events, all people, and all time. And the high point of his vision is this moment where there's a powerful, eternal ruler who descends from heaven itself. And this ruler is to take up lordship over the whole earth, the entire earth, for the duration of eternity. It's an absolutely spectacular vision. 
And this ruler is called in Daniel's vision, the son of man. So can you see the gravity of what Jesus is claiming? He's saying, this is who I am. I am the heir of God's kingdom and I will rule and reign forever. The chief priests understood this. They understood what Jesus was saying and they were enraged. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it even records one of them tearing at his robes and saying, what greater evidence do we need that this man is guilty of blasphemy? Because you see, it was the moment that he'd been waiting for. The chief priest had been waiting for something he could use against Jesus, something that he could use to condemn him. And so he could twist Jesus' confession, maybe before the Roman rulers at the time, and say, look, this man is claiming to be a king, and therefore he is against you, and you need to deal with him. So he manipulates the situation. So let me get a, a little sip here. Let's jump into what happens next, because they take him to Pontius Pilate. Let me read from Luke chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose, and they brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews then? And Jesus answered him, It is as you say. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying to them, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all the region of Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. I won't bore you with a long history lesson of who Pontius Pilate was, um, but suffice to know that Israel was not an independent state at this time. They were actually living under Roman occupation. And what that meant was the local government was made up of a complex mix of Roman expats that had been placed there and some local Jews or Israelites who had defected over to the Roman authorities and said, we'll work for you for a price. And so Pilate is one of these governors set there in Rome. And Rome allowed Israel to continue to worship, to have their own religion and religious practices. They even allowed them to have some of their own um, legal systems. But they drew a line and said that any case which gets to the point of someone being guilty of the death penalty, you must defer to us. And so this is what the chief priest had done, is he was trying to get Jesus killed and murdered. So he defers him to Pontius Pilate and he says, you deal with this man, he is guilty. But you see, the chief priests weren't only religious figures. They were political too, and they had some power and they had some influence over the people. And so they knew that if they told Pilate that Jesus was a king, then Pilate would have to deal with the accusation. And their hope was that Pilate would put Jesus to death as a traitor against the state. And they twist Jesus' words. They say that Jesus had told the people that they were not allowed to pay taxes to Caesar. But in fact, Luke does us the favor of three chapters earlier telling us exactly how the conversation went down. The people had asked Jesus, they tried to trick Jesus into getting his view around Caesar, 
And he asked, they ask him, must we pay taxes? And what Jesus does is he says this. He says, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but render unto God which belongs to God. So if anything, Jesus is actually encouraging the people that they should pay their taxes. Obviously, that's not his main point. He cares very little about the taxes and cares more about will you give to God what God deserves? Will you submit your life to him in the way that you should? So not only are the chief priests lying before Pilate, can you see that they're completely neglecting their duty? They're supposed to be the people who are leading. They're the ones who are supposed to be leading the people in the nation before God. They're supposed to be the their religious fathers. They're supposed to be encouraging them to worship God, but they care nothing. They care nothing for giving God what he deserves. In fact, they go as far in John's gospel um, to say this. They say to Pontius Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? But I can tell you, crazy as this is, it's not the first time that it had happened. Because centuries earlier, after God had saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, set them up in their own land, blessed them, made them fruitful, he'd never given them an earthly king. He had been their king and their leader himself. And he dealt with the people through a series of prophets and judges where he would simply relay his message and his commandments through these men to the people. But we have the record in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Samuel, one of the last judges, actually is rejected by the people of Israel. The people of Israel rebel against him and they say, we want a king like the other nations, like our enemies. And so Samuel goes before the Lord and he says, the people have rejected me as your messenger. And God says to him, no, they haven't. They've rejected me as their king. Can you imagine that this would happen, that people who are under the rule, the direct rule and reign of God would actually say, you know what, we would prefer somebody else. We'd prefer an earthly king, even an unjust king. That would be our preference. It's scandalous. But we run the risk of simply pointing fingers at them, both Israel and these chief priests and scribes, and saying, how could they? When in fact... This is my story, and this is your story. Because we struggle with authority, especially the authority of God. You see, I know I struggle with this. By nature, I don't like submission. I don't like having to answer to others who are in power over me. I definitely don't like correction. I don't like being told when I'm wrong and when I have to change what I'm doing or when I have to repent. I'd much prefer to just go with my own notion of what's right and what's wrong and what's just. And so, in fact, I'm just as guilty as they are. I would rather reject God's kingdom and say, you know what, God, I'll just do my own thing. And I'll invite you in whenever it's convenient to me. So I think this is all of our story. We don't mind authority so much if we can manipulate it. We don't mind authority so much when we can ignore it, as we may be tempted to, from time to time, ignore what the government says to us. But you see, God's not like that. You cannot bargain with him. You cannot manipulate him. You cannot bend the rules. 
God isn't like that. We have to take him at his word. And so we're actually, every single one of us, starting with me, we're guilty of choosing a king other than God. We're guilty of choosing ourselves and others and saying we'd prefer independence to have to answer to you, God. And so I want to encourage you and I want to exhort you and say together with me in this coming week as we look forward to Easter and we're going to celebrate and we have much good to celebrate, won't you do the difficult thing and bow the knee again to God and say, God, I lay down my preferences I lay down my independence. I lay down my own desires. And I submit it to you. That means my work hours. That means my family. That means my hobbies. It means my finances. It means my views about health and the conversations that I might have with people. Let's lay them down before God and say, you know what, God? You are king over me. And I want you to be king over me because you are a better king than I am. And so let's do that this week. But let's get back to Pilate. So there's two quick things I want you to notice about Pilate's interaction with Jesus. The first thing, which is so surprising, is that, Jesus, that Pilate doesn't find Jesus guilty. He seems to have cottoned onto the notion that the chief priests were actually manipulating the situation and that they were simply bloodthirsty. And so he recognizes Jesus' innocence. But then he does a second thing. He hears that Jesus actually comes from Galilee. So he thinks to himself, hey, this is, a, this is a lifeline moment here. I can just phone a friend and put him over to Herod's domain and say, Herod, you deal with him. So that is what happens. Pilate turns the, turns the chief priest and Jesus over and he sends them off to Herod and he says, Herod, you go and deal with him so that I don't have to deal with this tough um, this tough conversation and this tough situation. So I'm going to read for us what happens before Herod. Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 11. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So the whole entourage goes to Herod. And Herod thinks, hey, this seems like a moment for some entertainment. I don't really believe this Jesus and who he is. But let's see if we can get some fun. He questions him at length. He mocks him. He ridicules him. And Jesus, knowing that Pilate is not interested in the truth, doesn't even bother to dignify him with any answers whatsoever. He remains silent. And eventually, once Pilate has had his fun, as his last action, he thinks, hey, won't this be a funny irony? Let me dress this man who claims to be king as a king. He's obviously powerless. Look, he's at my mercy. So I will dress him as a king and laugh at him and beat him and scorn him. So that's what he does. He dresses him up as a king, has his last laugh, sends him back to Pilate and says, you deal with him. And so the phone a friend didn't work. And Pilate is stuck in the same situation. Only it's gotten worse. Because by this time, the chief priests have actually rented a crowd. They've brought a crowd in, and this crowd is bloodthirsty, and they're shouting to, to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. So now Pilate is trying to appease them. And so what he does 
<clears throat> is he pulls his last lifeline. Having dealt with 50-50, phone a friend, his last opportunity, he's going to ask the audience. See if he can't manipulate the situation to get the people to choose for him to set Jesus free. Let's read verses 12 through 19. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought to me this man who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find him guilty of any of your charges. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him, and I will therefore punish and release him. But they cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. The man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So Pilate addressed them once more. This is his final lifeline. He addressed them once more desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he says to them, I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released to them the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And so you see that Pilate didn't have the character to enforce justice at this moment. He believed that Jesus was innocent. He was probably still a bit confused about Jesus' identity, but he did not believe him to be a real genuine threat to the Roman state. But he didn't have the backbone to deal with the situation. He decides instead that he must just find a way to deal with this rowdy crowd before something even worse happens. So his last ditch effort is to, to ride on a tradition. There was a tradition at the time that at this Passover feast over the weekend, the ruler of the city would set free and pardon one prisoner. And so Pilate thinks to himself, let me pick the worst possible prisoner, the one that I know the people will not choose, and set him up against Jesus. And say, you choose, who do you want me to set free? The innocent Jesus or this terrible criminal Barabbas, the man who is definitely a guilty traitor and a murderer. Pilate thinks that this will be his saving grace. But he's mistaken. Because to his shock and horror, the crowd choose Barabbas to be set free and they demand that Jesus be crucified nonetheless. And so in this moment, justice falters. The Son of God, the King of the Jews, the innocent one, is condemned and sentenced to death by Pilate while he pardons Barabbas, a murderer and a rebel. It should seem for us in this moment as if it doesn't get any lower. We've reached the bottom because the chief priests have gotten their way. Herod has gotten his way. To some extent, Pilate has gotten his way because he's dealing with the crowd. And the bloodthirsty crowd seem to have gotten their way. Jesus is going to be killed. If we had to play a little bit of a sick game of Cluedo in this moment and ask, well, who is it that killed Jesus? I think we could say that it was the chief priests in the courtyard with a lie. It was Herod in the palace with a robe. It was Pilate on the patio with a wash basin because in fact he tries to publicly exonerate himself by washing his hands in a stone basin and saying I'm innocent of this man's blood. 
and we could say that it was the crowd gathered with their proverbial pitchforks and torches. These are the ones who killed Jesus. Except for one thing. Jesus had planned this from the beginning. Luke actually tells us, eight times at least by my count, that Jesus had said to his disciples in a variety of ways that the Son of Man must suffer and die. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and the elders, be killed and rise again on the third day. And of course to the disciples, this notion was unfathomable. They could understand that the Son of Man was the Messiah sent to come and rule and to reign, but if he was going to have an eternal kingdom, how could he die? And so the disciples have no idea what Jesus is saying. They completely miss it. And it's only after his death and resurrection that it begins to make sense to them. But nonetheless, Jesus has consistently, not only foretold, but planned that this would happen. We read in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem because he knew that no prophet dies outside of Jerusalem. You see, Jesus understood something even deeper that none of the disciples, none of these other rulers understood. He was the Son of Man and he will, he will rule and reign over his eternal kingdom. But his eternal kingdom is going to be empty because there is no one deserving entrance. Not one of us. I don't deserve entrance into the kingdom because I've said, God, I prefer my own way over your way. I would prefer to just live my life on my own terms and not have to submit to you. And everyone since Adam to now, every single one of us is guilty in some way of the same. Where we would not choose God, but we would choose ourselves or others. And so Jesus knows that his kingdom is going to be empty unless he finds a way to pardon us and to allow us entrance into his glorious eternal kingdom. I said that this was like a twisted game show. The thing is, is that all along Jesus was the host, just no one knew it. He was the one who was in control of every single step. In fact, if we were to fast forward a little bit to the book of Acts that Luke writes, Luke actually says this. He quotes Peter's sermon where he says um, that everything that had happened, God, this is as you have planned it. All of these people have done exactly as you have willed. And so for us, Barabbas is a really important analogy. We should look at this criminal Barabbas and the fact that he gets pardoned while Jesus gets condemned and notice that this is not just an incidental thing that happened. In fact, all four gospel writers make mention of this point. Because you see, for us it's a picture of the reality that is true for us. The reality that Jesus chose to lay down his life to be condemned as a criminal so that the criminals could go free. That those who do not deserve entrance in the kingdom would be accepted as sons and as daughters. That it would be pardoned and granted amnesty. He does this. If he could do this for Barabbas, he can do it for me. He does it for the worst of us. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus says this. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
In Mark, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you see, the sovereign Son of Man, who will rule and reign for eternity, chooses to lay down his life. He is sovereign, not only over the people and all events, he is sovereign over his own death and resurrection. How incredible is that? I want you to notice the contrast of the kind of king that we're supposed to be seeing Jesus as here. Everyone in a position of power and authority in these chapters that we've read is actually just about saving their own skin. The chief priests, Pilate, Herod, all of them care nothing for the people and care only for themselves. But Jesus, who is worthy of all honor, of all praise, of all adoration, says that I will stoop down low because I, will, I care for you before myself. I lay my life down so that you would live. And so if you're unmoved by Luke's accounts that I read in the beginning, about Jesus' claims about who he is and the evidence of what he's done. I want to ask you to consider this. Consider that this king, Jesus, willingly gave up his life so that you could be pardoned and that you could enter his kingdom. And we ask the question, how do we respond? How should we respond to all of these events and this truth and this confession of Jesus? I want to suggest that we respond by bowing the knee. Because Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king like, unlike any other that has ever lived. There is no one like him. And so in light of that, instead of having once shouted, we have no king but Caesar, I want the cry of my heart and your heart to be, all hail King Jesus. Won't you stand with me and pray? Jesus, this morning as we've had a look at the texts, we've seen the ridiculous trial that seemed to be this mess. But meanwhile, the truth is that you were in control all along. You are the one who is sovereign over every word spoken, over every action taken. Because you are the Son of Man. Jesus, I pray that this morning you would give us eyes to see the kingdom of God. And see what is required to enter it. And that none of us are worthy. But that in you we can be made worthy. Because Jesus, you don't measure inadequacy. You measure allegiance. So Jesus, this morning as we confess our inadequacies, inadequacies and we say we could never measure up to you, I'm just so grateful that we don't have to because that's why you went to the cross. You went to the cross for each and every one of us who does not measure up. And what you do instead is you offer us the hand of allegiance. allegiance. Say, just bow the knee. Just bow the knee. But I also know that allegiance isn't just a bunch of empty confessions. It means hearts that are willing to submit to you. So help us today to submit our health, our work, our family, our hobbies, our money, our relationships, our dreams, our goals and desires, our plans for the future. 
Jesus, let us submit them before you because you are the worthy king. You are the worthy king. And so Jesus, would you receive our worship as we sing now and as we remember that there is no king like Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask that you just take, the banjo's going to play for 30 seconds or a minute and just reflect for a moment about the glorious King Jesus and his offer for you and his death in your place. And then we can sing and we can respond.